0: superhumanize accelerated evolution New technologies are coming in the near future that will push the boundaries of what we understand to be human, and that will radically change what it means to be human. Cybernetic and biomedical technologies such as cloning, genetic engineering, and nanotechnology are just a few of those, and could make a better life for everyone. What this could mean, for example, is the elimination of most of the diseases we're struggling with right now. Babies free of genetic defects, the creation of non-human sentient beings that may at some point also have legal rights, and also the possibility of near All of these technologies hold great promise, but they also pose profound challenges to our culture, to our health, and our democratic political system. When humans become more than human, post-human, or transhuman these new technologies will require new answers for questions such as what limits should we place on the freedom of individuals to control their own bodies, who should own genes or other living things, and which technologies should be mandatory, which voluntary, and which forbidden. Democracies must assess and respond to these questions Questions now and recognize the tremendous opportunities as well as the dangers in order to actively decide what kind of a society we want for ourselves and our children. My guest today has devoted his life and career to pondering and answering these questions. James Hughes is the executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technology. He is a bioethicist and sociologist who serves as the associate provost for institutional research assessment and planning for the University of Massachusetts Boston. Dr. Hughes holds a PhD in sociology from the- the University of Chicago, and is author of Citizen Cyborg, Why Democratic Societies Must Respond to the Redesigned Human of the Future. James, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so excited to speak to you. I'm glad to be here. Today, we consider it completely normal to have people with uh, prosthetic limbs, pacemakers, and uh, you have argued in the past that people on dialysis or using prescription drugs, or even people wearing glasses, or even us carrying cell phones nowadays, that we could all be considered cyborgs to a certain uh, degree. And today we have... Technologies such as CRISPR, stem cell organs, artificial organs are in the making, nanomaterials and robotics, brain-machine interfaces, just to speak of a few. What kind of technologies and enhancements can we, knowing what we know and have now, realistically expect to become a reality in the near future, let's say the next 50 years?
1: One of the things that I frequently do in these discussions is just point out that most of the things that we expect are, continu- are continuous with things that we've already been doing for a long time. In terms of becoming cyborgs, being able to have media that record our thoughts and upload them again later or integrate us with other people, that's really the story of literacy. Once we were able to inscribe our thoughts on external storage media and upload them again later through our eyes and share them with other people, People began to complain about the effects of some of those technologies back then, that kids aren't memorizing the epic poems anymore because they can just read them now. And so a lot of the complaints that we've had about various kinds of technologies over time are simply that when you get to a certain point in history, whatever point that is, a certain point in history, there's a certain fear of the new. And Mm -hmm. so there's a certain kind of moral panic that people get into about things like social media is social media qualitatively a different way that we communicate? Are we actually believing in more conspiracy theories or more partisanly divided than we were 150 years ago when we had a civil war that killed half a million Americans? I don't think so. If you look back at the politics of the previous centuries, lots of conspiracy theories and and so Mm -hmm. forth. So I think it's really important to start there that we're on a trajectory and the things that we're talking about are just the extension of trends that have already been happening for a long time. What are some of those trends? Having increasing control over our brains, our bodies, and our reproduction are the three big areas that the enhanced human enhancement project has focused on. And my institute, the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, it calls itself Techno Progressive, and we're concerned about more questions than just human enhancement. But in regards to the transhumanist debates and the human enhancement debates, we have argued for, like uh, transhumanists, we've argued that people should have a right to control their brain and their body and their reproduction. And that means defending in some way cognitive enhancement drugs, psychoactive uh, drug use, it means defending your ability to change your own genome, to have prosthetic limbs, to have prosthetic organs. It means being able to control not only whether you have children, but also what kinds of children you have. And those are all the the, the what kinds of children part. Fortunately, the whether to have children is not that controversial anymore, but the what kinds of children is uh, very still very controversial. The issues around controlling the brain are probably the most controversial of all these things. And there we're talking about not only psychoactive drugs, but also brain machine interfaces. And some of the questions around brain machine interfaces and eventually uploading or recording or connecting brains using brain machine interfaces do begin to get us into a qualitatively different set of questions that human beings have never had to confront before. If we connect our brains in ways that are so profound that we begin to lose the boundaries of identity between ourselves. But that's gonna be a new thing. But most of the things that people get upset about or begin to be anxious about in this space are not really profound ethical dilemmas when you get down to it. Life extension is an example. We Mm -hmm. certainly think that everyone will and should have access to uh, life extension technologies in the future. We want them to be as safe and as equitably distributed as possible, but we don't think that the challenges, the social challenges that will be brought about by an extra 30 or 40 years of life, whatever, or however much it turns out to be, is going to be qualitatively different than the challenges that we've had to deal with extending life extension in the last century. We went from a 40-year life expectancy to an 80-year life expectancy, which meant that a lot of us didn't get to inherit our parents' stuff until we were in our 60s. But we adapted somehow. That was a challenge. It means that Supreme Court judges are going to be on that bench until they're 90, unfortunately, in many cases. And we're going to have to adapt to that, maybe put in term limits, maybe get them to resign. But I don't think that those are profound challenges. I think the the challenges about consciousness, identity, changing emotions, those are really the ones that we're going to have to really rethink things in order to to deal with.
0: I remember uh, while I was doing my research, you also mentioned in an interview that we may well uh, have technologies or or medicines at our disposal. For example, you could literally take a pill and be happy or have your brain upgraded and uh, not feel pain and not suffer anymore, but very different from what we use now, where we pop a pill to suppress symptoms, where we actually can take something to enhance ourselves and, and free ourselves from these problems.
1: In the domain of moral enhancement, we've been debating for 15 years whether drugs and devices and other technologies could be used to change the moral sentiments and the moral behavior of people and whether we should be doing that. And again, in this domain, I think the liberal vision of both techno-progressives and transhumanists is that we want to see a future in which these drugs and technologies have been tested. You have informed consent, what the consequences and the risks are of taking them. And then as widely accessible as possible, we want to make sure it's not just for certain people, not others. But that within that regime, people would be able to experiment with changing their moral sensibilities. And one of those moral sensibilities would be how happy you are. And 1984, not 1984, uh, Brave New World. 1984 is a different vision, but Brave New World has the drug Soma in it, and it rep- Soma has always represented this anxiety that allowing people to make themselves happier would actually contribute to a more static, authoritarian society. That somehow it's the it's angry people who change the world, or depressed people <laughs> change sure. the world, but it turns out not to be the case. It turns out that the most civically engaged people, the people. And in in terms of social theory, it turns out that revolutions are not conducted by people who are totally depressed and demoralized. They're conducted by people whose expectations were raised by everything going the right direction, and suddenly they're not. And in terms of your personal behavior, we know that depression is severely demobilizing. And so People have to have a certain amount of optimism, a certain amount of positive mood in order to be just get on with their life, not to mention fighting the government or whatever. So I think that we do have to be very cautious about some of the downsides of technologies like happiness extension. It could be that cranking people up to eight is the optimum. In our society, but that cranking them up to 12 would make everybody just sit around and eat nachos and watch TV. (laughs) And we don't want that. So we make sure that they go to eight, not to 12. So I do think there are important questions here, but they're usually not the questions that are being asked.
0: Superhumanize. If you extend the question from the mere happiness aspect, if you take this further, we have a lot of biological constraints that affect our human nature and our the way we live life, our virtues. Some of us may have addictive personalities that we, that's just maybe been genetically passed down, that we have a higher susceptibility for that, a lack of self-control, or like you just said, uh, depression, and we're not able to live up to this ideal version uh, of a human. And a lot of transhumanist proponents argue that we can use these technologies, this part of these technologies that we've just been discussing, to actually get closer to the human ideal. I wouldn't
1: say human ideal, because I think one of the things that makes people rightly anxious is the notion that there might be some movement trying to create a narrow vision of what the perfect person is, or perfect Mm -hmm. future human. And that's not what it's about, at least in the the kinds of transhumanism and techno-progressive thought that I'm talking about. I think that there will be versions of that in other parts of the world where authoritarianism and communitarianism is more dominant. And China, of course, is on our a lot of our minds these days. And China is very open about embracing the idea that there are better and worse citizens And that the better citizens are the ones who pursue the right kinds of ambitions and who don't uh, criticize the government and who don't play video games and take care of their kids and aren't in debt. And so they've created a whole system now to reward good citizens and punish bad citizens. The opposite of that is a liberal society. We still have moral constraints. We still have laws to punish people who do bad things and that we have decided to incarcerate or punish them for. And we still have mental health systems to determine that certain people are too dangerous to themselves or others. But within that, we generally say, we're not going to punish or reward you in a way that would be considered authoritarian in order to push you in a certain direction. However, within that, every government, every society still sends messages about what a better and worse thing to do is. So In our society, you're allowed to believe in any conspiracy theory you want, and you're not going to get locked up just because you believe conspiracy theories or get subject to involuntary mental uh, illness treatment. However, the government is perfectly within its rights to say, hey, folks please don't believe conspiracy theories. and In particular, this one is a very dangerous one. Don't believe this one. That's perfectly within the legitimate rights of a liberal government to do. And so I think in the same way, if a government says, hey, we should all vote, hey, we should all mask, hey, we should all uh, socially distance, these are pro-social messages. And if the government then were to back that up at some point and say, look, those of you who consider it really difficult to do these things. Here's this pill. It'll make it a lot easier. I think that would be acceptable in my view. Some people would, we would have a debate at any rate about whether that's an authoritarian thing to do to subsidize certain kinds of moral enhancement in society, not to make it mandatory, just to subsidize it. Hmm. But that's the kind of public policy debate we need to be having. And instead, the ones we have are either, this is all science fiction, it's never going to happen, so we don't even have to think about it. Or, we, uh, it's so scary, the prospects of these questions that we should just ban them and take them off the table.
0: Right. And I think you're, uh, you're pointing your finger at a very important fact is that yes, we have people right now who are embracing these potential changes and really looking forward to this future with these opportunities and choices. But there are people in groups that have a real deep seated fear of these technologies and what they could bring in, in your book, people who either say, don't mess with mother nature or others that are religiously influenced and say it's playing god and therefore inappropriate for us and in your book you call them bio or bio luddite how can we build a bridge between bioconservatism and the other more radically progressive end of the spectrum the those people who call themselves libertarian transhumanists what is the middle way
1: The book Citizen Cyborg was written in the middle of the last decade and the politics around human enhancement debate had reached a a point where there were prominent articulators of a variety of different points of view. There were left-wing critics and right-wing critics of human enhancement and left-wing supporters and right-wing supporters Mm -hmm. of human enhancement. And I was trying to articulate that political space, and then talk about the things that the different sides had in common and the things that they disagreed about. So in particular, the, the use of the term bioletism was rhetorical on my part, because mm-hmm. many of them would not accept that. But I, the reason I would defend that term still is that the Luddite movement of the 1820s in England, it wasn't as if the people who were smashing the uh, weaving looms were opposed to plows. They weren't opposed to all technology. They were opposed to the technology that was in front of them that was taking away their jobs. And their response was, the only thing we know how to do is destroy this machine. Now, that's the same as responses today where people are not opposed to vaccination or organ transplantation or whatever, but for some reason they get a, a, a bee in their bonnet about genetic uh, enhancement or whatever the thing is that they're focusing on now. That's why I use that term bioludism. Mm-hmm. But bioconservatism is the more uh, common term today, just as the term that I use for the, pro- the socially progressive and egalitarian vision of what an enhancement future could be. I use the term democratic transhumanism in the book. The more used term today is techno-progressivism mm-hmm. or techno-progressive future. My conclusions today about this is that basically being positive about these technological futures and not being anxious about social change uh, is correlated with and related to a lot of other social attitudes. It's related to attitudes about sex and gender deviation. Mm-hmm. People who are at one end are anxious about anybody who's not a boy and a girl and that boys sleep with girls and girls sleep with boys. They they get upset about those things. And the people at the other end are like, we don't care. Do whatever you want. One end is religious conservatism. The other end is secularism. One end is authoritarian nationalism. And the other end is liberalism. And those attitudes, those social cultural attitudes are all basically correlated with each other. And I think what we no- understand today is that they are also correlated with attitudes about the risks and benefits of technology in the future. They're correlated with education. The more education you have, the less anxious you're going to be about things like artificial intelligence, vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, both the libertarian end of the spectrum, which is people who have conservative economics but liberal social cultural view, and the techno progressive end, which is the more social democratic politics and positive technology views. These are consistent with that end of the spectrum. They just disagree about how important the market is versus the state, how important redistribution is, taxation, those kinds of questions. They don't disagree about almost any of the cultural questions. The folks who have a lot harder time are the ones on the culturally conservative end. And there are examples of religious transhumanists who are trying to figure out how religious you can be and still be a transhumanist and, and, and so forth. In other words, I was arguing 15 years ago that you could have a very complex political space instead of the one that we have now. I think we still have the one that we have now. It's just that we all have to be, to recognize, and let me say one more thing about the libertarian transhumanists. Libertarian transhumanists have had a disproportionate influence on our understanding of transhumanism and transhumanist discourse because of where they were located and their affluence. Mm. Transhumanists in general are white guys, especially white guys with a certain kind of education, generally a STEM education, not a humanities or social science education. Some women, but not very many people of color, but some women who started, for instance, the Extropy Institute in the late 80s. That was one of the first transhumanist organizations in Southern California. And that Southern California ethos of tech libertarianism. And then carried over into people like Peter Thiel, who is this weird amalgam, a Christian fundamentalist, Trumpite supporter, but also part of this libertarian milieu of California. But he's a billionaire. So his opinion is blasted 10 times, a million times more than someone like me who's not a billionaire. So when I have done the, the survey work to determine what the politics is of people who identify as transhumanists mm-hmm. or techni- uh, not techno-progressive because they've already got a politics, but people who identify as transhumanists, there are more people on the left than there are in the libertarian yeah. circle. There are, no, there are only fractions of people, like 1%, who would say that they're on the far right or culturally conservative versions of politics. But it's basically between the balance between the social democratic left and the libertarians. And the libertarians, we outnumber the libertarians about two to one. And so I think that it's an important point to make because it's just that the discourse about transhumanists always assumes that we're all like Peter Thiel. (laughs) And I, I beg to differ. Most of us are not. The majority of us are not.
0: Superhumanize. You also mentioned it, and what you just shared with us, religion. Uh, can transhumanism address and maybe even propose a solution to the conflict of uh, secular modernity uh, versus a fundamental Christianity and traditional Islam?
1: One way to understand what transhumanism is, is that as soon as we were capable of imagining alternatives to our condition, so... 100,000 years ago, when we began to develop symbolic thought and language, whatever that was, we probably started to think about, wouldn't it be nice if we could live in a world in which we weren't hungry all the time, in which we weren't constantly being subject to intertribal warfare and and death, violent death? Wouldn't it be nice if I was healthy and didn't have all these broken bones and worms and infectious diseases and scabies and all the things our ancestors had to deal with? And they projected that vision of what a better society and a better body could be like onto either their understanding of the past. When we, f- when we first got here on this planet, we were all perfect. And then things went to hell from there. Or they projected on the future or after death, when we get to heaven, we'll have a perfect body and everything will be perfect. And when we got to the 1600s, the 1700s, then the Enlightenment said, hey, look, these aspirations, they're fine but let's try science technology and reason instead of prayer and religion and to do these things so the aspirations are fundamentally the same which the religious critics of transhumanism are happy to point out mm-hmm. that you know we're talking about healing the sick the blind shall see raising the dead achieving enlightenment uh, so that we can become 10 times you know smarter than we are so all of these are various kinds of religious aspirations. It's mm-hmm. just that the means that we're going to use are science and technology. Yeah. So I don't eschew the religious comparison. And we already see that religions are ha- have always had to deal with the advance of science and technology. They can't just ignore it. They have to either say, don't do that because it'll lead you down the path to perdition. Or they have to say, you can do these things and not those Or they take it on wholesale. Uh, Healing people is a Christian obligation. We're going to set up Catholic hospitals. We're going to set up. And the the only thing in a Catholic hospital you can't get is a a condom, but... And birth control pills, but aside an abortion. But aside from that, you can do everything in modern medicine. It's all consistent with being a good Christian. Mm. I think the same thing is going to happen with human enhancement technologies, especially moral enhancement. Because imagine how much trouble the Catholic Church could have saved itself if it had given testosterone suppression drugs to Catholic priests over the last two hundred years, instead of having them all trying to figure out their confused sexuality with their parishioners just say, you're not going to have any sexual feelings. They would have been a lot happier and it would have been a lot cheaper. I think some religions are going to take these things on. The Mormon Transhumanist Association is the most well-organized transhumanist group in the world. And they have some interesting thoughts. They see transhumanist technologies and promises of eternal life as fulfillments through technolo- technological means as fulfillments of transhumanist as, uh, of mormon prophecy and so even secular mormons are drawn back in they said i'm not i don't believe in all the mormon stuff anymore but transhumanism seems to fill that mormon shaped hole in my in my soul and so i i think all these things are fascinating and inevitable i personally I'm a former buddhist monk and have written a lot about buddhism and transhumanism and and still consider myself a Buddhist, although the term is so loosey-goosey that hardly means anything. But but in the regards that I am interested in trying to figure out where Buddhism can contribute, the Buddhist uh, thought could contribute to the transhumanist tradition, and vice versa, how the two merge together. So I'm very engaged in religious dialogue of, of many kinds, but especially the Buddhist one.
0: And I would love to hear more about that because come to think about it, the Buddha was in an essence about transcending the human condition. Can you tell us about your background in Buddhism and also how it informs your work today, please?
1: Sure. I became a Buddhist when I was in high school. There was a Tibetan Buddhist group in Columbus, Ohio, where I was living, and I had been exposed to Buddhism through the Unitarian Church. Americans may be familiar with Unitarianism and its peculiar contribution to the religious landscape, but it's basically a secular humanist church. And and in that church, I got taught about Buddhism. And then when I was looking for something with a little bit more meat on its bones than Unitarianism, I turned to Buddhist uh, meditation and philosophy. In college, I led a Buddhist group and then after college i went to work for a buddhist development organization in sri lanka and while i was there they invited me to ordain temporarily and i stayed in robes for only 4 months so i get to i get the the credit the the mark on my buddhist membership card like going to mecca or something but um, i wasn't in robes for a very long time but the things that i appreciate about the buddhist tradition are a particular kind of answer to the, to what we call the meta-ethical question. Meta-ethics is why do we believe that any particular argument for right and wrong is the right argument? If I tell you that the only thing that's right and wrong is, like Ayn Rand believed, is selfishness. Mm-hmm. You know, selfishness is the ultimate right okay, but why? She, If you read Ayn Rand, there's in Atlas Shrugged, there's a 40-page speech that tries to make the argument for why selfishness is the beginning of right and wrong. What Buddhism says is, look, forget about right and wrong. Look at yourself. What are you trying to accomplish? What is important in your life? You're constantly running after things, then you're being disappointed by those things, and you're suffering as a consequence. If you understand your own brain and your own behavior, you will begin to be able to unravel this knot of suffering that you have created. And as you begin to unravel it, you'll find another thing. You don't really exist that you're what you constantly think of as the you that you need to defend in all these situations and all these different ways. That's just something that you're making up. And it doesn't mean that you don't then get out of the road when a car is coming. It means that you are liberated from all the unnecessary suffering that is caused by believing in this fictive you. Now, it, when it gets to enhancement, for instance, a lot of the debate is about you can't do that because that would be akin to suicide. If you change that fundamental aspect about yourself, you're basically killing yourself. That's assuming that there is a real you that like kids, if should kids take ADD, a stimulant medication for ADD? I did as a kid. My kids have taken ADD stimulants and some kids don't like it and they don't feel like they're themselves when they take them. Mm -hmm. But a lot of kids who have ADD, they say, oh, when I take this pill, I don't hit my brothers and sisters with bricks anymore. And good on that one. I'm feeling like better about things now that I'm not in trouble all the time. And now that I'm able to accomplish things in school, so this whole notion of authenticity, of personal authenticity that's used to argue against, and it's also in the gender debate, is it authentic for people to have gender dysphoria and to change their bodies to be a different gender? I don't really care. I I think there's an over essentialization and medicalization of gender in some circles. And I part of, one way of interpreting gender dysphoria is that you're really a girl or you're really a boy inside. Personally, I think in the future we're going to just have this kind of blurring out of gender and what's going to happen is that I you could make a decision from anywhere from here to here and maybe up here and here, right? about what kind of gender expressions biologically psychologically culturally you're going to to make you may be a guy with a beard who just wants to wear dresses you may be all these other combinations and that's going to be fine that's the kind of freedom that we imagine anyway i forgot how i got onto
0: that topic right, right? no and that's fascinating <laughs> maybe maybe we'll also have the opportunity to be different things at different times and experience the whole spectrum you brought up something really interesting talking about the the self and what we perceive to be self. What is your definition after all of your life's experience now? What is self?
1: Again, the that is one of the central conundrums, questions that Buddhism focuses on is the rejection of an essentialized self, mm-hmm. of saying that you are an act, you are a verb basically you are an act in creation you are not a thing you're not a particular package of mental traits and physical traits and this is a huge problem and debate within the transhumanist movement because for instance some have argued that that there's a pattern in your personality And that what will constitute a continuity, if you were to upload, for instance, if you were to make a recording of your brain and upload it into a computer, obviously in that process, there's going to be some change in the way things work and what gets recorded and how it gets instantiated in a computer. How? When do we know that this is a real copy of you, that we should yeah. treat this as if it's the same as you, whatever that, how, how that will work, we have to dis- discuss as well. But when would we know that? People have argued that there's a certain kind of fidelity to the pattern in your brain. Mm-hmm. I would argue there is no one pattern. If you had recorded me now, I, I think I'm a lot more stable than some, but There's some very fundamental things that I I have changed in over time. And so my 20 year old self is different from my 40 year old self is different from myself now. And similarly, there is no, the the whole question about whether the pattern is authentic is just probabilistic. It's not a matter of, oh, ding, now you're the authentic person in silicon. So that's one way in which I think I understand the self is that it's a matter, the self is something we feel but it's not a real thing. It's with vision. We know that in the center of our vision, there's a hole. We never see that hole because our eyes are constantly cicading around and creating a synthetic understanding of what we're seeing. That doesn't see a hole in the same way. The self is a hole and and we're cicading around it and creating this illusion that there's a self there, but it's not really there. It doesn't mean that it's not really nice to have intentions over time. To say, by the time I am 70, I would like to have written three more books. That's a perfectly legitimate thing to say, even though that it's a fiction.
0: And uh, also what you just mentioned is really interesting. Let's say we are, once we're able to upload our brain, our memories, whatever all comes together there what we consider ourselves in a sense or what most people would consider ourselves and you also just said that the self is something that that keeps developing evolving or it's not a static thing so is that really a a self would it still evolve or would it just be stuck in that silicon suit? and well that's an
1: interesting question yes some of the science fiction about uploading I imagines that once you recorded it into silicon it would be able to do whatever it did when you recorded it but it wouldn't be able to change i find it hard to imagine that we would be able to get the complexity of a human mind even for a mind to function as a mind yes. there has to be the ability to record new memories and new skills and you would be in the uh, man who mistook his wife for a hat by oliver sacks he re- he describes some retrograde amnesiac patients who don't have memory beyond 10 seconds mm-hmm. and i think although we would want to treat them with respect and and not euthanize them or something but that is a pretty essential aspect of what it means to be alive and conscious as a human being the, the ability to make memories over time and have for to have your relationships with other people and your understanding of the world change so I hope that that's not the way memory gets instantiated in silicon. I don't think it will be. I think the risks are actually in the other direction that our the speed at which we think could be much more rapid. And so we might be on an entirely different time scale once we begin to upload. I think we're go- there's going to be a transition phase where we're we've got a lot of tech in our head and that tech in our head starts to provide us some outsourcing from the limitations of the meat. And mm-hmm. in that context, we'll be able to do things more rapidly thinking with our exocortex than we will with our prefrontal cortex. When we then transition fully into uploading, then we will have to deal with this question of people just zipping off and living a thousand years in 10 minutes. And how do you talk with somebody who's doing that? Or people who, who it, there's a question, I think, about whether the self can actually the illusion of the self can persist once you get smarter and smarter. Ben Goetzel's proposed this, that artificial intelligence, once it gets beyond a couple layers beyond human complexity of cognition, it may just lose the thread of the illusion of self or see through the illusion of self entirely and become a more transcendent, mysterious being. And we might have the same fate as well. And so that's another place where the religious questions and the transhumanist questions come together.
0: Superhumanize. Something else that you mentioned, once we advance, that we can use all this tech and put it into our brains and upgrade, brings up the question of the superior transhumanists versus biological humans in the future. And... If it's a choice and you're not forced to do these upgrades, as I would think it would happen in democratic uh, societies, unenhanced humans could experience themselves or their condition, a handicap or a disability. How do we address the potential schism between humans who choose to stay, biological humans or may not be able to make the transition for whatever reason, and post-humans?
1: That goes back to this question of what does it mean to live in a, a liberal society, a society that respects people's freedom, but also one that doesn't respect their freedom to sleep under a bridge. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the, the Amish have made very different choices than the rest of us. And we're totally fine with that. And one of the choices they made is not to participate in the military draft. Religious Orthodox in Israel don't participate in the military draft. I think those are questions that a society can ask. How much can we ask of minorities within our society who we generally want to tolerate their choices, but sometimes their choices lead to bad outcomes? If uh, the Amish had on a wide scale basis decided that they would oppose vaccination or that they would somehow uh, disable their children. So for instance, an example I've used before is if a religious cult decided that they wanted to blind their kids so that they couldn't read heretical texts, we would step in and say, nope, child abuse can't do that. It's not within your religious freedom. It's not within our understanding of freedom in our society for you to do certain things to kids, which harm them. There may be enhancements in the future that are so clearly beneficial that they're online with being vaccinated against COVID. And that we may want to ask the question, how much pressure are we going to start putting on people who aren't doing this? Mm-hmm. Because it's so clearly beneficial that not doing it is almost like child abuse or a violation of people's rights. So I think there's some interesting questions there. But <clears throat> I think in general, we can tolerate a lot of growing diversity about the uses of enhancement. But there's, there are questions about how people who have superpowers – and here, I'm, I really am thinking in a science fiction. the X-Men. The X-Men narrative is basically, oh, treating people, mutants who have superpowers differently, that's just like racism. Is it? Because being a different skin color really doesn't give you the power to blow up buildings. <laughs> you know? And that's what a lot of the superpowers in the X-Men universe, they can disappear or appear, they can blow things up. And it's more like having a tank. And we as a society have decided that we'll allow people to have a lot of bad guns. And I don't think we should. they should have as many guns as they do. But at least you're not allowed to own a tank. You're not allowed to own nuclear weapons, right? And so some superpowers, some enhancements will be akin to having these kinds of powers that need to be democratically accountable. Only soldiers who are well-trained and are tested should have these kinds of powers for these specific purposes. Only certain kinds of police should have these kinds of powers. only just like nobody not everybody can fly a plane you if you yeah. want to fly a plane, you have to get certain kinds of training. If you show up for work drunk, you lose your right to fly a plane. and I think a lot of powers and enhancements like that are going to be in that category in the future.
0: Mm. And maybe there's also mechanisms that would prevent somebody who has been endowed with these uh, powers to prevent them from becoming the evil transhuman overlord.
1: So now if if you're a pilot and you show up for work drunk, they just say, you're probably got a problem with alcohol. You're not going to fly anymore. Mm -hmm. But what if you could say, okay, I did this once, but if you give me this therapy, this treatment... It has 98% chance that I will never drink a drink again. How about that? And that's basically the redemption arc, like with Me Too. Is it good enough if I was caught being a bad white guy uh, in the Me Too era to say, I'm going to go for some sexual harassment training? We're biffy about that because we know that you can sit through an entire sexual harassment training and still be a bad guy afterwards. But if you knew that sexual harassment training, it was a little bit of MDMA, a little bit of oxytocin, they were giving you a gene shot to reduce your testosterone, 98% success. They never commit sexual offenses after that. Then we might consider that uh, not only would it be a therapy for someone who demonstrated that they were a bad guy, but maybe for certain occupations, we want them to have that as a requirement of Mm -hmm. being employed in that occupation. Certain kinds of child care, certain kinds of senior care, things like that. Yeah. That's just the, I I think our imagination about how to regulate and how to deal with the problems of enhancement is kneecapped by the debate between it should all be allowed or it should all be banned. Mm -hmm. And there's so much territory in between. And that's what I think we need to talk about.
0: Yes, definitely. I personally am very excited about the developments and the potential for the reasons you also mentioned before, all the positive aspects and effects of these medicines. There's something I wanted to touch upon again when we are talking about self before. It brings up, of course, also the idea, the notion of Um, personhood. And there's a question you have posed in the past, and I'm going to read that quote, Uh, does your ethical code advocate the well-being of all sentient beings, whether in artificial intellects, humans, post-humans, or non-human animals? So when does a, a being, a robot, or an enhanced organism have the right to personhood? First,
1: let me just say that that question comes out of uh, survey research that we did when I was the head of the what's now called Humanity Plus. And we were asking people in the transhumanist community whether they agreed with a variety of statements, more than 100 statements, that we thought might be various aspects of the transhumanist worldview. And so we came up with the top 10 statements that almost all transhumanists agreed with, which seemed to be things that dis- distinguished a transhumanist from non-transhumanists. And one of them is this intuition about the, the significance of moral personhood at not being related to being a human. And it was one of the core things I talked about in Citizen Cyborg. So what it means is that John Locke, for instance, was a Enlightenment thinker, and he asks at one point. He's one of the classic people for <laughs> the Enlightenment understanding of personhood because he asks at one point if God's going to bring us back for judgment. What does he have to bring back? Does he have to bring back all of the atoms that you were made up of at the point that you died? Probably within his powers, but it doesn't seem necessary that he would have mm-hmm. to do that. What he all he has to bring back to do a good judgment is your memory of yourself and your actions over time. And if that's all he has to bring back, then that memory is really you, right? That's, if, if that's what God says, he doesn't want to bring back just a, a blank zombie and say, you did bad stuff that you can't remember and I'm going to punish you to hell. But if he brings back you with all of your memories and then punishes you, it makes sense. So if we're just our memories, then that puts this notion of personal continuity on the psychic, the psychological. And it also puts the idea of what the core constituent element of our moral society is uh, a thinking being with intents and purposes over time. Whatever that sense of self is, that memory of self over time and the desires that go along with that, that's what a thinking moral subject is in our society. Now, until... The 20th century very few people were interested in extending that beyond the human and our most of our debates were about whether women had enough of it to really be able to vote or black people had enough of it to not be slaves once we decided that almost all humans should be presumed to have enough of that to have moral significance that they're going to be citizens in our society we then started to ask about some of the edge cases fetuses have enough Do people who are brain dead and just on a, a ventilator, do they have enough? Do animals have enough? Do robots have enough? What would an alien have to be like to have enough? And that's the moral personhood question that we're at today. I have, and the IET has organized conferences around the theme, arguing that moral personhood in animals is the next kind of debate that will push this whole um, understanding forward because they're already the, the non-human personhood project um, has been filing suit on behalf of animals, great apes, elephants, dolphins, the animals that are closest to us in the mammal evolutionary chain, that they exhibit m- most of the mental framework that we consider to be morally significant, a capacity for Culture, a capacity for communication, a capacity for language, self awareness, and so on. I don't want to extend it to fleas or to microbes or to viruses, right? There's a line at which you are not sophisticated enough that you neither demonstrate it nor is it likely that you have it, even if we can't detect it. And I think we have different obligations towards those kinds of creatures. And this whole debate is also related to in ecological politics and ecological philosophy is nature itself a moral subject i don't believe so i think that nature is just nature nature does what nature does and that's the is we are the ones who create the ought we are the ones who say oh nature don't be so mean to that tree that why is it that these bugs are eating this tree wouldn't it be nicer if this tree was not eaten by bugs okay you can have that opinion about nature. That's a human opinion. It's not a nature opinion. Nature does not care whether the tree exists or it gets eaten by bugs. So all of the values in the world come from people like us. And we're the only ones that we know to talk to about this so far. It may be that once we um, have, once we, for instance, start to experiment with a cognitive enhancement of great apes, it's going to happen. It's already, you know, Stalin tried to do it. He Stalin tried to create a great ape army because he, he wanted to see if we, he could have soldiers as strong as grills. It's a crazy story. But we're going to have at some point great apes who have been cognitively enhanced. They already have enough of that s- mental stuff as far as I'm concerned. But when they're cognitively enhanced and they can have a conversation with us, They may have, just as human beings differ on all kinds of things, they may have different points of view about some of these things. And they will add to our moral conversation. But I think our presumption should be that everybody who reaches at least the mental status that great apes display and dolphins and elephants and so forth, that they should be presumed to have the fundamental not to be tortured, not to be imprisoned, not to be enslaved. They may not have a meaningful right to vote or to... To file an SAT and try to get into law school yet, but those are eventually things that we could help them towards. This whole debate about moral personhood for me leads to the question of uplift, which is what obligations do we have to disabled our neighbors who are disabled in these regards? Do we have the obligation just to leave them alone? For most of the great apes in the wild, I I would not welcome. A project to round them all up and give them cognitive enhancement shots. But for the ones that are already in our custody, who already um, are living lives, questionable moral lives in zoos or in research facilities, do we have an obligation to make them as capable of agency as possible? I do think we do. And that requires some cognitive enhancement.
0: Superhumanize. Yeah, for me, this has always, the question of personhood has always been based on. Can you suffer? And also, can you say you exist and envision your future, your purpose in life, what you're called to? I think all of these are such important questions, all kinds of different topics, but they're tied together under this one umbrella. How can we move this discussion more into the mainstream and also into the political space?
1: Both things, the mainstream and the political space, connected my mind is a matter of random chance, I think, because it's very difficult to predict when various kinds of techno-political issues will bubble up and become a focus of public attention. And an example is the Terry Schiavo case in Florida about, what is it, 12 years ago now, when for bioethics in around 1980 was when We got most states to sign the brain death protocols to agree that if you were completely gone in your brain, that you were as good as dead, and that we could turn off a respirator and take your organs and so forth. And we also got, by the end of the 80s, almost all folks on the same page in healthcare. There's a hierarchy of people who get to decide uh, what to do with you when you can't make decisions for on your own anymore. And then 20 years later, Terry Schiavo comes along. The whole country goes, wait, what? You consider this woman dead? Or oh, you think that her husband has the right to turn off her respirator? How could that possibly be? It's like, oh, we thought we had already solved this problem. But it turns out we had just solved it for ourselves and for the legal and regulatory regime and not as a matter of public politics. And I think a lot of issues are going to be like that. This whole debate, we've been debating how to prioritize pandemic supplies, ICUs, and vaccines for a very long time. The people who got in trouble with for death panels, the death panel debate under the turn to Obamacare, Zeke Emanuel, for instance, he had been writing about prioritize how to prioritize, pandemic drugs in the context of a pandemic for 20 years. But the public doesn't pay any attention until they're in the middle of a pandemic. And you can't predict a pandemic. You can predict that it's likely going to happen. And this is not going to be the last one, but you can't predict exactly when it's going to happen. So I think in the same way, we face a whole variety of possible biopolitical conflicts, automation of work.
0: Mm -hmm. If we
1: suddenly, after this pandemic year, we suddenly see a continuing sluggish job market or even a loss of employment because of an increasing turn towards automation. We're going to have a whole debate about automation. The CRISPR gene editing method, we had been debating the ethics of gene modification for decades. Then we had mostly given up on it because every time we tried it with the methods that we had, we bad things happened. Kids got cancer, people died. And so we thought, we just don't know how to do this. Then CRISPR comes along just like that, out of the blue, and revolutionizes the field. And now we have to actually address who gets to modify their kids for intelligence, who gets to pick their kid's hair color, et cetera, et cetera. We can't predict when most of these technology questions are going to arise, but we can imagine the kinds of debates that the kinds of technologies that we think are going to happen will generate How much control over your brain, how much control over your body, how much control over your reproduction should people have? Those are going to be questions raised in all kinds of ways by all kinds of issues. And we just don't know exactly when and how.
0: Yeah, we know they're coming. And I think what you stand for, which is let's discuss these things now, is so vitally important because many of these developments could literally pull the rug out of under us and our understanding what being human means. James, there's a question I ask every guest that I have the pleasure to have on the podcast, and that is, what are the practices that have most profoundly in a positive way affected your life, mentally, physically, or spiritually?
1: Meditation has been important. I should always meditate more than I do. One of the reasons why I'm interested in a moral enhancement technological path is that even when I was a Buddhist monk, most Buddhist monks do not meditate. They consider it to be an extraordinary, austere practice, difficult practice, just like most people who try to meditate discover that it's a pretty difficult thing to do. So I'm very interested in ways that we might democratize and uh, make it easier for people to both be good and to pursue spiritual practices like meditation. But meditation has been important. I think I have been a very avid internet person ever since it was available. I first got my first email account in like 1990 and set up my first web page in 1991 or two. And I have always consciously tried to figure out what kinds of influences and information am I getting from the internet from this growing web of, of knowledge and communication. And it's one of the reasons why I'm positive is that I think if you do take a conscious approach to being integrated into the global news sphere, it can be a very enriching phenomenon. We all have to learn things along the way. We have to learn what's bad data. We have to learn not to get engaged in flame wars, uh, how to have the moral fortitude to uh, resist some of the temptations of the internet. But uh, in general, I'm a big fan. And exercise, I guess I'm, a, I'm an exercise meditation, a little bit of weed, (laughs) simple life.
0: Those are all really good things. And is there anything that we should be aware of, what you're working on, anything you'd like to share with us? The Institute for Ethics and
1: Emerging Technologies was founded in 2005 by me and Mark, me and uh, Nick Bostrom. Mm -hmm. And we did about 10 years of solid work. And then when 2015, 2016 came along, We ran out of money, and the imminent threat of fascism in the United States led some of us to be very distracted for the next four years. Fortunately, we have received a new tranche of funding to pursue research on artificial intelligence and work, artificial intelligence and peace and democracy, and on human enhancement questions in general. So we're starting a new uh, six-year program of work around those topics, and... uh, we will have some postdoctoral fellows situated at my institution at the University of Massachusetts Boston, which is behind me. And those ads will go up shortly for people if people want to apply to that fellowship. We have launched, relaunched our journal as the journal of ethics and emerging technologies. We'll be doing conferences and podcasts and videos and, and all the stuff. I think it's going to be an exciting These are always exciting questions whenever you dip your toe in. But for the last four years, I have to confess, it seemed like we were being jerked back to the 1930s. It was really hard to think about what the 2030s were going to be like. And now we have a little bit of breathing space. Hopefully we'll get jerked back again. But we have a little bit of breathing space to really begin thinking consciously about what kind of future we're going to live in
0: you. I'm with you 100% there, James, and I really look forward to what's going to transcend from your work in the next years. I'm going to make sure to put all the information in the show notes. I'd love to get the information also, uh, once you have it, where people can sign up to become members and uh, support all that you do. This conversation has really tickled and expanded my brain. I feel it growing as I sit here. James, thank you so much for making time for us today it was really great to talk to you
1: good luck with your work it's an exciting podcast that you're running
0: superhumanize accelerated evolution